If you're listening to WHI today, you know about the very real challenge of the opioid crisis and how it has impacted families and communities all over the United States. It's a severe and complex crisis, but not one without solutions. That's why IHI is proud to invite you to our virtual expedition, Taking on the Opioid Crisis, which aims to give healthcare leaders and providers the information and skills they need to impact the multiple drivers of the crisis in their own communities. IHI virtual expeditions are action-focused online training programs for teams. Lasting two to four months, they focus on some of the most challenging areas facing healthcare professionals today, like the opioid crisis. For the Opioid Crisis Expedition, participants will learn about how to improve opioid prescribing practices by educating prescribers and care team members about the risks of opioids, as well as teaching care teams and their patients safer ways to manage their chronic pain. Taking on the Opioid Crisis begins on February 28th and is free for Passport members. To learn more about how your organization can become a Passport member, visit IHI.org Passport. To learn more about this expedition and others, visit IHI.org Expeditions. If you enjoy and learn from this important episode of WIHI, we hope you'll engage with your team and join us for the Taking on Opioid Crisis Expedition starting next month. Now, here's WIHI. Among the many challenges to turning the tide on the opioid epidemic in the United States, there's a need to break the habit and the dependence on prescription opioids to treat pain. There are signs that physicians are getting on board with that message, but this still begs the question of what else can be offered to patients that's as effective or nearly as effective for especially chronic pain. And when Vicodin or Oxycontin need to be part of pain management, even for a short period of time, what are ways to guard against patients becoming dependent and addicted? Definitive answers don't exist, but many, many, many individuals and groups are working on strategies that point in the right direction. And we're going to learn about some promising approaches at three health systems on this edition of WIHI, our first in 2018. And I want to welcome you to WIHI. A reminder, we're an online audio talk show from the Institute for Healthcare Improvement. We come to you live every other week, and then after the show, you can find us on iTunes. I'm your host and producer, Madge Kaplan, and I'm also IHI's Director of Communications. There is definitely an urgency for healthcare providers to replace or limit opioids as the first and only only place to turn to treat pain. At the same time, patients with pain in pain need reassurance that they aren't being abandoned while the system figures things out. So to introductions in just a minute, but first here's IHI's John Gothier. He's going to remind all of you how to take part in today's program. John. All right. Thanks, Madge. Uh, just a few items to point out to help everybody make the most of today's program. Uh, on the right of the screen is our chat window. And if you've tuned into WIHI before, you know about the great conversation that takes place in the chat. It's also where you can ask our panelists your questions. So make sure that your questions and comments are directed to all participants when Madge opens up the floor to questions. This allows our panelists and your colleagues on WebEx to see the questions and comments being shared. Now, there are a few ways that people have connected to WIHI today. If you're logged onto the computer and listening to WIHI by streaming audio coming through your speakers or your headphones, you'll see a box in the top right-hand corner. It says audio broadcast. If you're on a less reliable internet connection today, we recommend calling in on the phone. If you experience any audio issues, please send a quick message to the host in the chat. A simple solution, though, may be to pause the WebEx audio player and then press play. And if you continue to have any issues, please let the folks at IHI customer service know. We have their number on the screen right now. 
Also, if you're hoping to get your hands on today's slides, I'll provide a direct download link in the chat. Tomorrow, they'll be posted at our archive page over at IHI.org WHI, along with the chat and other helpful articles and resources mentioned by our guests. You can also email info at IHI.org, and they'll send them your way. Finally, we're always looking for ways to improve the listener experience here on the program. Please take the time after the WHI to fill out a quick survey and let us know what we've done. Back to you, Mitch. All right. Thanks, John. A reminder, we're also, we're going to turn to the chat and your comments and questions at about the halfway mark of the show. We welcome your tweeting during and after the program. Thanks for including at the IHI and the hashtag WIHI in your tweets so we can connect with others. <clears throat> All right. And uh, let's get right to those introductions. We've got uh, two people joining by phone and two here in the studio. Joining by phone, Dr. Glenn Crod. Jr. is a clinical associate professor of medicine at West Virginia University and executive vice president and chief operating officer of the Charleston Area Medical Center. That's a 924-bed tertiary teaching healthcare system in Charleston, West Virginia. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you, Madge. Wonderful. Also on the phone, Dr. Shane Coleman is Division Medical Director for the Behavior Services Division of South Central Foundation in Anchorage, Alaska. He works with others to provide direction, support, and oversight for the integration of behavioral health and addiction services into primary care. Welcome, Shane. Thanks, Madge. Really uh, glad to be on the phone today. Okay. Here in the studio, a warm welcome to Dr. Rob Saper. He's Associate Professor of Family Medicine at Boston University and also the founder of the Program for Integrative Medicine and Health Disparities at Boston Medical Center and Boston University School of Medicine and the current chair of the Academic Consortium for Integrative Medicine and Health. Great to have you with us, Rob. Thank you, Matt. It's nice to be here. And right across from me, we've got Mara Laterman, a director with IHI's innovation team. Mara is the content lead for IHI's work in behavioral health. She directs research initiatives and developing programming focused on better meeting individuals' behavioral health needs across the healthcare system. And a big thank you to Mara for helping me pull this uh, WIHI together. So uh, you win the prize with the first question, Mara. Uh, the last time you were a guest on WIHI, you and Lindsay Martin, we were talking about the need for a multifaceted strategy to address uh, this particularly prescription-related opioid ep epidemic. And one big facet that we're focusing on today, how doctors and nurses and others can change their over-reliance on opioids for pain management. Let's start off by why this is so important and how big a challenge uh, that may prove to be. Thanks. Thanks, Madge, and thanks for having me. We're asking healthcare providers and organizations to do a lot when it comes to addressing the opioid crisis. And this is in part because there are multiple roles that they can and should play in their communities. There are a bunch of different interventions that we'll talk a bit more about, but there's limiting the supply of excess opioids. There's raising awareness among patients and providers about the risks of opioids, providing effective treatment for opioid use disorder, and then collaborating across the community to fit their existing efforts, fit into existing efforts underway by law enforcement, by public health, by EMS, and others. The one that we're going to hone in on today is limiting the supply of excess prescription opioids in circulation. We know that changing opioid prescribing practices in inpatient, emergency, and outpatient settings is critical. 
Providers need retraining and re-education about how and when to prescribe opioids and how to have conversations with patients about the risks of taking opioids for pain. Since a peak in 2010, we have seen a decrease in opioid prescribing rates, and this is the result of a lot of hard work, increased adherence to guidelines, more widespread implementation of systems to help track patients taking opioids across organizations, across states. So Yes, we have seen a decline in opioid prescriptions, but we still have a long way to go. Prescription rates are still three times as high as they were in 1999, but we are seeing some signs of improvement there. But more broadly, this isn't just about opioids. Opioids have become, for many, the first line and often only option for a range of acute and chronic pain needs. This is about retraining and re-education about pain and pain management. Physicians want to help patients manage their pain, but for many, opioids are one of only a very limited numbers of limited number of tools in their toolbox. Part of this is about giving providers the information and the tools that they need to provide other non-opioid pain management options. And as Dr. Saper will discuss, there is evidence to support non-opioid pain management options for chronic pain, such as chronic back pain, which is a, a common reason for office visits for pain as well as for uh, chronic opioid use. But knowledge of this evidence and its indications are not widespread among clinicians. And this is changing, but we need to accelerate this around the country. There was a recent study in JAMA. It looked at uh, pain scores among groups of patients who were given three different options and a fourth group given ibuprofen and acetaminophen for acute extremity pain in the emergency department. They found no significant difference in pain score reduction, indicating that for this particular type of acute pain, it could be managed with ibuprofen and acetaminophen for patients for whom uh, that is safe. And more studies like this are needed, and they need to be more widely, disse widely disseminated and incorporated into training for physicians like emergency medicine docs, surgeons, hospitalists, primary care, family medicine providers. The other part of this is about how providers and patients have conversations and set expectations about pain and, relatedly, the risk of opioids. And there are some efforts underway now to do just this. HCA, which is a large hospital system based in Nashville, has started to talk with patients about how they're going to feel some pain after a surgical procedure. I wanted to pull something that HCA's uh, chief medical officer, Dr. Mike Schlosser, said in a recent story about their work. Um, he said that they tell patients, and this is a quote, we will treat the pain but you should expect that you're going to have some pain. And you should also understand that taking a narcotic so that you have no pain really puts you at risk of becoming addicted to that narcotic. And this is a big change for providers and for patients who increasingly have come to expect to feel little to no pain. And especially when pain control is currently a question on patient satisfaction surveys, although this will be changing, um, the communication is often about kind of pain and, and pain management. But this expectation to feel zero pain can drive increased use of opioids, which we know are not actually addressing the underlying cause of that pain and, of course, have such a high potential for misuse and abuse. It also can be more challenging to figure out for each individual patient the, the right course of action um, rather than prescribing opioids for everyone. But changing this conversation between providers and patients from feeling zero pain to a more reasonable expectation from pain management at different points in recovery is going to be critical to reducing the supply of excess opioids. Um, and I know we're going to talk a little bit more about payment, so I think I'll pause there. Um, Turn it back over to you, Mash. Okay, sounds good. Uh, that's Mara, and uh, we will come back to her during Q&A. 
and uh, really, really appreciate your stewardship of this issue here uh, at IHI. I want to turn now to Rob Saper. So, Rob, what do we know about the effectiveness of non-pharmacological treatments for pain, and um, how are we going to make those more a part of uh, what's considered? Thanks again. Sure, thank you. First, I'd like to talk about uh, the approach of integrative medicine in pain management. It's not a specialty, but an approach to care. And yes, it does involve evidence-based use of non-pharmacologic therapies, such as physical therapy, acupuncture, spinal manipulation, massage therapy, mind-body practices like yoga or tai chi, and uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness-based stress reduction. But it also involves looking at the whole person. Each individual person with pain is not the same. And pain impacts all aspects of the human experience. Having pain obviously can decrease physical function, and that impacts how one does their daily activities, whether it be at work or at home. But it can also affect the mood and cause depression. If someone's coping skills aren't strong, they can suffer even greater for that. And then certainly it can impact one's social and employment situation, leading to uh, unemployment and poverty and certainly social isolation. And likely in my experience, many patients with chronic pain feel like there is no hope and they lose a sense of meaning in their lives. So that's a critical piece. Yes, we have tools, and I'm going to get to the evidence of that, but we have to look at the whole person. Secondly, the provider, whether it be myself as a family physician, an acupuncturist, or a cognitive behavioral therapist, has to create a relationship with that patient and understand the individual patient's values, preferences. Do they just want medication? Do they want to avoid all medication? And what are their unique circumstances? So that patient can then trust the practitioner and the practitioner can guide uh, appropriately. And then, as we spoke about evidence-based treatments, now sometimes that's medications. And sometimes even through judicious use of certain evidence-based procedures or even surgery. But what's exciting now is really a growth of evidence uh, that is showing uh, the usefulness of certain non-pharmacologic therapies. About 20 years ago, uh, NIH started uh, the Office of Alternative Medicine with a budget of $2 million annually. Well, now the annual budget of what is called the National Center for Complementary and Integrative Health is about $130 million. And with that growth in budget, there has been a growth in the number of studies, randomized controlled trials, evaluating many of these different therapies. Some are of poor quality, some fair to good quality, and some of excellent quality. But what we're seeing now in the last one to two years is truly a watershed moment where we're taking all this evidence that's been collected and beginning to review it through systematic reviews and meta-analyses. This publication uh, by members of the NCCIH, uh, NIH staff, uh, did a narrative review of 105 randomized controlled trials looking at five different common pain conditions, low back pain, neck pain, uh, arthritis of the knee, fibromyalgia, and tension headache, and quite nicely showed the evidence for effectiveness and safety of a number of these therapies uh, for those conditions. Going one step further, in the last year, uh, 
uh, a number of key agencies and professional societies have come out with systematic reviews that are really key. And the one on the left from the American College of Physicians was a clinical guideline published earlier in 2017 for low back pain, both acute and chronic. And the key message that came from here was guidance to physicians to use non-pharmacologic approaches first before the use of medications. Um, and that really is uh, uh, really a radical departure from what we have said before. And in their guidelines, they show that for acute low back pain, acupuncture, spinal manipulation, massage therapy, and local heat are all evidence-based approaches that should be used first. And similarly, for chronic low back pain, a longer list of therapies that are non-pharmacologic can be used, including the ones that I just mentioned, also yoga, tai chi, cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness-based stress reduction, exercise modalities. Recently, AHRQ posted a draft uh, systematic review um, of all chronic pain conditions, very much the same ones that I mentioned before, and the utility of different non-pharmacologic approaches. This is a very rigorous systematic review, over 300 pages with appendices over 1,000 pages. And what they concluded were that there is, uh, g there is moderate evidence showing that there are small to medium effects of many of these therapies for acute and chronic pain conditions. And that report will be finalized soon. The Institute for Clinical and Economic Re Improvement also did a systematic review focusing on low back pain and neck pain. And not only did they look at effectiveness, but they also looked at cost effectiveness. And they concluded uh, that for uh, chronic low back pain, acupuncture, MBSR, which is mindfulness approaches, cognitive behavioral therapy, yoga, and tai chi all had not only net effectiveness, but also could demonstrate value uh, using cost-effectiveness analysis methods. And then lastly, the organization for which I chair, the Academic Consortium for Integrative Medicine and Health, recently posted a white paper reviewing the rationale and history of the use of uh, these non-pharmacologic therapies, integrating them into medical care, and review the evidence for their effectiveness and safety, and ends with several recommendations for policy changes such as increased reimbursement by insurance companies as well as more education uh, for uh, clinicians. Turning now to uh, research that we've been doing at Boston Medical Center, um, two things I'd like to raise. One is Boston Medical Center and our program for integrated medicine and health disparities focuses in on the predominantly underserved with the underlying premise that everyone should be able to get these types of care if they need it. We conducted a three-arm randomized controlled trial comparing yoga to physical therapy and education for chronic low back pain and showed that the yoga was as effective as physical therapy uh, for the back pain. And some of these quotes here, I think, reflect nicely some of the non-physical benefits that patients receive. And then lastly, I'll just leave you with a resource that you can find on the consortium's website. It's a pocket card called Moving Beyond Medications and gives a nice uh, bulleted list of basic approaches that you can do working with your patients. Wow. Okay. You know what this represents. 
tremendous work over multiple years uh, to be able to talk about any of this, and I ask people to do it in a matter of minutes. So uh, thank you, Rob. I also want to note for uh, Carla, who chatted in that the full articles cannot be obtained. We'll do our best to make sure in our resource uh, document uh, if not in this hour, by tomorrow, uh, when we post all this, uh, we'll get as many links uh, in there to full material as possible. So thanks, Rob. That's very good. And we're interested, uh, those of you who've tuned in today, to what extent uh, you are either the recipient or engaged in some way at working with some of these alternatives uh, and what you're finding out and how patients are responding. All right, we're going to go now to West Virginia and to Glenn Crotty. Uh, tell us about Charleston Area Medical Center and some of what's going on there with new prescribing patterns. I think uh, some of what you're going to focus on is the emergency department and also an interesting therapeutic pain clinic uh, that's going through some changes. So, Glenn, welcome again. Thank you, Madge. Uh, in our area, we as you know, across the country, uh, West Virginia leads the nation in uh, deaths per capita uh, from uh, opioids and uh, other phar uh, pharmacological agents, heroin, uh, fentanyl, and fentanyl combinations. And a lot of these, pa a lot of patients uh, have had chronic uh, medical problems that have led to uh, the use of opioid medications. Uh, in, the, in our OB area, we found a large uh, population of high-risk patients that Dr. Calhoun is managing those patients uh, with uh, Subutex uh, and has been had some success. Uh, and scrolling through the slides, uh, you can see that the, he has a therapeutic range that he gives, the limited supply. He has a treatment protocol uh, and makes uh, necessary adjustments. And the outcomes uh, from the tapering algorithm on the next slide uh, show uh, that of the 64 patients initially enrolled in, in a year, uh, 28 uh, uh, left the program, 14 terminated, 10 patients were, are still tapering, four patients are still tapering and pregnant, uh, and we've had uh, uh, some success in delivering babies uh, that have not needed NICU or uh, other uh, long-term treatment for uh, withdrawal. Next slide. Okay. Okay. Uh, these are the baby outcomes. And I know. I've. Uh, these are the baby outcomes. Right. Yeah. And NICU and the newborn. Okay. Reminder yeah. to everybody yeah. that one. you can download these slides so you can uh, linger on them a little bit longer. Um, okay. Right. All right. Go ahead. Jim. Moving on. Moving on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, on our next slide, from one of the ways that we have been uh, uh, working on this in our medicine clinic. Uh, dealing with uh, uh, medical, chronic medical problems that our patients on narcotics is the clinic has adopted the CDC guidelines uh, for prescribing uh, opioid medication and have limited the total uh, 
MEQs of morphine to less than 50. And with that limitation, uh, over 52% uh, of that Dr. McJunkin's study uh, showed satisfactory pain control uh, under that uh, regimen. Uh, 38 did not have uh, adequate control, but there were no overlap of ben benzodiazepines or opioids. No extended release opioids are prescribed by the clinic. Uh, and in the emergency room, we have limited the amount of narcotic uh, to two to three day uh, prescriptions uh, for pain medicine uh, so that uh, we do not contribute to the uh, uh, problem. And this has been adopted by the West Virginia Hospital Association and are uh, working through the state to uh, continue to adopt these guidelines. Next slide. With the uh, alternatives, uh, our, our pain clinic uh, has been able to not prescribe oral narcotics. Uh, and they use a combination of uh, procedures, blocks, uh, therapeutic injections with non withdrawal uh, medications, and uh, morphine pumps uh, that deliver narcotic to a very specific area. Uh, and 90% of their patients who uh, go to the clinic and are successful with their treatments have been able to be weaned off of their narcotics that were prescribed by others uh, with satisfactory satisfaction of their pain control. Uh, I will tell you a couple of anecdotes uh, of uh, one of my family members uh, had elective colon surgery uh, and was able to use only non-steroidal uh, intravenous medication and not take narcotics and was out of the hospital in two days. Uh, so with the will, there is a way uh, not to use narcotics and to uh, recover quicker uh, from procedures. Mm -hmm. So those are some of the things that we've been doing uh, to try and address the uh, treatment problem and to provide alternatives to narcotic medication. Glenn, thank you. Um, just say a word or two about what's in store for uh, the pain clinic, uh, kind of the vision that you have uh, for 2018 and how that might sort of serve uh, people in multiple ways. Well, part of we're we're putting in pieces of, of this now, but the pain clinic would additionally have uh, individuals that do the cognitive behavioral uh, therapy, uh, other behavioral therapy, uh, adding uh, physical therapists and uh, other alternative providers, as the previous speaker talked about, uh, with integrated into the clinic. Uh, we hope to be able to readjust the clinic into a different space uh, here in, the, in this year uh, that would allow us the room and space to be able to offer alternative uh, to just the uh, uh, procedures that they do right now. 
Okay. All right. Well, thank you so much, uh, Glenn. Appreciate getting that snapshot of what's uh, going on there. All right. Let's uh, now turn to Shane Coleman. We'll bounce from West Virginia out to Anchorage, Alaska. And um, here we've got the South Central Foundation, uh, Bald Ridge Award winners. Um, is that two years in a row? Uh, very um, amazing things going on there with primary care and the NUCA system there. Uh, so, Shane, tell us sort of how uh, that's all lending itself uh, to moderations and modifications with what's going on with pain management uh, there and the use of opioids. And welcome again. Sure. Thanks, Madge. Um, yeah, so so primary care really represents kind of the heart of our of our care system here. Uh, part of our philosophy is that we want our customer owners, uh, which is what we call our patients, to you know form a real relationship with their primary care team, and we want that to be the heart and consistent and the center of things moving through. So. We really make a big effort to make that happen and to keep that philosophy as we think about needing specialists and then all sorts of other uh, tertiary care, et cetera. We really try to keep primary care a focus and bring things into primary care as opposed to sending folks out. So so in that spirit, uh, we basically created a, a integrated primary care team with many different disciplines. It's uh, You can see as on the illustration there, we have everything. The core team is a nurse case manager, a primary care doctor, um, a CMA, and an administrative assistant, but we make sure to layer in all sorts of other services in addition to those. So that includes pharmacy, dietitians, behavioral health. We have both master's level clinicians as well as psychiatrists integrated into our pod structure. We have a physical environment that allows people um, to do team-based work in close proximity to each other, to promote good communication, et cetera. So that's really kind of the heart of, of where we're starting at, and and that model has lent itself to helping us meet the needs of our customer owners, such as um, those that relate to you know the prescribing of opioids, chronic pain, et cetera. So the other thing that um, that we really try to do is embrace definitely a whole person picture uh, with regard to health. You know, we do see, much like Robert mentioned, we see, you know, pain being very complex and multidimensional. So not only physical health, but involving one's emotional health, neurological, psychosocial, et cetera. So um, part of the reason why we have all of those different components into primary care is so we can try to address all aspects um, of one's health. Uh, and a pain is a perfect example of why we think that's important and when uh, addressing everything becomes really important. As far as our systems approach, that's another thing that we do is we really try to focus on not just the interaction that occurs in the office, but really a systematic and systems-based approach to supporting uh, not only the health of our customer owners, but our prescribers as well and our treaters um, so that they have the tools they need to, to really work well with our customer owners. Um, this is a list of some of the systems changes that we've created in response to difficulties with chronic pain. This has been a journey for us uh, for quite a few years. Um, I want to say it goes back, gosh, probably even 15 years, we started making some of these changes. So um, while they all relate to chronic pain, that you know, it's not something that's developed just in the last three or four years, but we've kind of um, changed our system to try to meet the need as we saw this coming over the horizon and as, and as it's kind of um, really come into <clears throat> the picture in, in the present day. A couple of things I'll highlight, which might be a little bit different than some of the system changes that other folks have done. Uh, one would be our opioid review committee. So this is a, a resource for our 
primary care docs and our prescribers who want to refer really tough cases, whether that's um, they're worried about the um, duration of opioid or the dose or there's some dynamic that they're not sure what to do with in the relationship, et cetera, um, they're able to review um, or to refer folks' cases to the review committee who will take a neutral uh, approach, um, examine the case, kind of look at all aspects, uh, evaluate it, and then give recommendations back that go in the chart that stay with the case. Um, an, an adjunct to that or another kind of similar approach, but one that involves our customer owners, is something called a wellness care plan. And that's when we invite all aspects of treatment. So could be the primary care team, it could be behavioral health folks, it could be our um, alternative treatment modality uh, practitioners, and we pull everyone together with the customer owner and discuss um, together everybody's goals, so the treatment team's goals, the customer owner's goals, where they align, where they may not align, um, pieces of support that we may be missing. So it's really kind of a structured and um, focused uh, way to, again, resolve difficult dynamics or support either the customer owner or the treatment team uh, when any barriers arise to treatment. We also have brought in a chronic pain specialist into our system and allowed them to work through a consultative model. So, so that pain specialist works um, only with the primary care teams in consultation. Um, she does go in and see folks one-on-one, -on -one, but it's in conjunction with a primary care provider. So we can help share education with our primary care workforce. And uh, those visits would result in a consult note that then stays in the chart, helps the, um, the primary care doctor build their knowledge set and skill set over time. And, and she is able to emphasize, um, again, much of what Robert actually mentioned, you know, she's a pain specialist, um, well, uh, keeps well up to date with the evidence for um, non-medication uh, ways of treating pain, et cetera. And so she's been a really great addition to helping our primary care docs and our customer owners understand the risks of long-term opiate use and, and other ways that we can help uh, manage folks' uh, health and pain over time without having to use uh, opioid medications. Finally, I'll mention just some of the other alternative treatment modalities that we've developed here that we see as really central to helping meet the needs of our customer owners and really promoting health. So we have a wellness center, uh, which is quite a large building that has a gym. Uh, we have dietary consultants. We have PT. We have all sorts of everything from uh, yoga classes to, you know, more traditional um, cardiovascular spin classes to weight uh, room classes, et cetera. So this entire building, three different floors, is really uh, dedicated to um, helping people make lifestyle changes and educating folks about what, what it means to have good um, life habits, basically. We also include in that building some uh, other uh, alternative modalities uh, for treatment, um, including acupuncture and other things, again, that Robert mentioned. Uh, finally, we also have a traditional healing clinic, um, which is part of our primary care center. So uh, because we um, are an organization uh, that is owned and operated by Alaska Natives for Alaska Natives, uh, that traditional healing component is a really important piece that we add to our repertoire um, that really works well for not only customer owners, but our primary care system, too. Um, oh. One last thing that I'll mention is a shift in our medication-assisted treatment approach, uh, which is we used to have a kind of a standalone behavioral health clinic doing MAT, and we've moved that, and we've created a spectrum of services uh, from our primary care clinic all the way to an intensive outpatient clinic. 
um, we're able to shift customer owners between that spectrum of services so that when we start them, we have a more acute answer for their treatment. And eventually, when they become more stabilized, they're able to um, be in primary care, and the primary care docs are able to cover those scripts once the behavioral health folks have helped stabilize. We also extend those services to the hospital, so we're able to start MAT in the hospital in acute settings when necessary. And then finally, I think I'll just highlight maybe some outcomes. Um, you can see there that uh, the number of primary care docs that had uh, waivers to um, provide MAT and specifically buprenorphine went from less than 1% to 72% over a couple-year effort. Um, the middle one there shows our psychiatrists and our behavioral health prescribers going from 1% to 94 And then finally, we've been able to increase the numbers of folks being treated uh, with MAT from less than 10% in primary care to over 150, or sorry, less than 10 people to over 150 in primary care. <laughs> okay, I think I made you speed, but you also got in uh, a lot there, uh, Shane, and I want to thank you. Um, I, I think a lot of what's going on uh, at South Central um, in many ways is probably where a lot of folks who are listening today uh, would like to get to, you know, in, in uh, a, a kind of vision um, and do feel that you're very fortunate that you've had a philosophy and infrastructure that kind of ha you've been working on for a long time. So let's hold it right there uh, with that amount of information. Uh, we have a few more slides from Shane, but you'll see all that when you download them or on our website tomorrow. We do have um, a bunch of questions, and I just want to give uh, just a minute or two for Mara to say something about payment issues, uh, and I think Rob can speak to that as well in this alternative uh, as we look at integrative uh, options, um, sort of where are we uh, in, in that uh, dynamic. Thanks, Mara. Um, so payment is a, a big barrier. Common opioids like hydrocodone are generally pretty cheap, but a lot of these other pain management options are not. And things like physical therapy, massage, yoga, acupuncture, many health plan benefits might require preauthorization for those services. They might not cover a sufficient number of visits to be therapeutic. They might have higher out-of-pocket payments than they would for an opioid prescription. And so it's an important thing to call out is as we're encouraging providers and healthcare organizations to explore these other options for pain management, it's really imperative that payers, health plans, rethink some of the benefit structures to ensure that their members are able to afford other approaches that providers can actually prescribe uh, something that is going to work that they can afford and that opioids are not a default because they're cheapest or the easiest. Mm -hmm. Rob, uh, your thoughts a uh, little bit about how, how approaches and, you know, how to kind of get around or get through some of what have been barriers uh, around coverage and, and, and uh, cost. These are certainly barriers, the ones that Mara described, and it really requires uh, all of us as a community to advocate uh, to both private and public payers for coverage of evidence-based approaches. I will say on a positive note, um, some state Medicaid uh, uh, groups are starting to cover, for example, acupuncture like Massachusetts and Ohio. Uh, there are some private uh, health insurance companies, uh, United Healthcare comes to mind, which is including uh, coverage for these type of therapies into their overall approach. It's not just coverage, but it's also benefit design, reducing copays. Sometimes access to physical therapy can be 30 or $40 a copay for a visit, and that is prohibitive. 
Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Uh, thanks for all your questions. I think everybody's got the hang of it. Uh, sending your questions to all participants so we can all see them. I want to acknowledge and thank uh, Steve Barnes, uh, who joins us uh, from Australia, who's been telling us about his own journey uh, with pain and different modalities. So I encourage you to read Steve's comments. We have some questions about the Opioid Review Committee who sits on it and uh, having that uh, time to do so. I also want to just remind everybody that all our slides, you can download them when you uh, get off the program today. You're prompted with that question. Uh, we also post them to our website tomorrow, and I think that uh, there's a link there. Yeah, there it is again, if you want to download them immediately. And I also want to thank Judy for sharing uh, what's uh, some of the stuff that's going on uh, in her organization. And Judy, I would say if you can send us any links, then we'll provide it in our resource document as opposed to everybody having to uh, email you. But thank you for sharing your email. But we'd be happy to share it as well. Uh, let me just start with this uh, question. Uh, well, let's go with the Opioid Review Committee and who's on that uh, Shane. And uh, I think maybe the other question was a little bit more general, which in some sense is always about time. Rob referred to relationships and sort of the ability to actually get to know who your patients are and their preferences. Uh, maybe, Shane, you could address that as well, and then we'll turn uh, to Rob and Glenn. Thanks. Yeah, the uh, thank you. The opioid review committee is made up uh, primarily by primary care docs, but um, but we actually allow all different disciplines from our organization to participate. So we definitely have a primary care doc res representation. We have nursing representation, uh, a manager. We even have management um, on the committee as well as a psychiatrist. And the interesting thing about that committee is that. Uh, while it used to be it used to meet more frequently every couple of weeks, even month, it's gone down to uh, every couple of months or every third month because we're getting less and less cases as our system gets better and better and kind of more well adapted to, you know, meeting the needs of both our customer owners and our our primary care physicians. So we consider that kind of a real success. Okay, great. There, I think there was a second uh, yeah, question sorry, that maybe I, you wanted me to answer. Well, I, this, this issue of time, I I think that that is one that's mm -hmm. a you know perennial one, right? now uh, in terms of yeah. so the, the complexity of what we're trying to do here and really pinpointing the best approach. Uh, maybe you could address it and then I'll go around the horn with uh, Rob and Glenn. Yeah, if I so unfortunately my uh, the questions are coming up kind of slow on my screen and I didn't see that one, so I'm okay. make sure that I answer uh, speak to the question. But um, as far as time goes, I'm guessing it's with regard to staff maybe doing things like this and not yes. being in the clinic. Is that yeah? Yeah, and just so, really so, structuring that in. Yes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think our philosophy here is that, you know, if we focus on the right things and it's a real need of our customer owners, then, then you know, some of it is just having the faith that, one, it's the right thing to do, and that, two, um, creating better care will end up saving you money on the on the back end. I, I know that isn't a great answer as far as, uh, you know, numbers at the end of the day often is, is what's bringing your bottom line. But the truth is we really try to do what's right here, and then we worry about the money second. And, and um, it's, it's just kind of our philosophy and one of our one of our goals and commitments to to making sure that we produce the best healthcare. Thank you, Rob. 
The payment system that's in place, unfortunately, often dictates the type of care that's received. So in a dominantly fee-for-service model, it incentivizes uh, many, many appointments, high volume, a short time, and an emphasis on high reimbursement uh, procedures. I think the good news is is that uh, many areas of the country are shifting to more type of ACO models, global payment, capitation models, where people will be rewarded for low-cost uh, care and the volume issue is not uh, such a such a problem and we're moving into that in Massachusetts and I think that that uh, 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 bodes well. And in terms of the time, when you were referring before about what it means to really better understand who the patients are in terms of approach and working with that patient, who's doing uh, that kind of more uh, nuanced conversation? Ideally, it might be the, the main provider, but are there others on the team? Uh, yes. So uh, I, patients uh, who have challenging pain situations by my colleagues in primary care or in rheumatology or orthopedists will refer the patient to me, and I'll do what's called an integrated medicine consultation and spend 40 minutes with that patient really going over the kind of issues that I said before. That can be, as a physician, I can bill for that based upon time. Uh, often at a level four or a five. And um, the type of, uh, if we're on a fee-for-service or an RVU-driven system, the RVUs obtained there are fairly comparable to primary care. Uh, and so that that becomes quite feasible. Okay, very, very good. Uh, Dr. Crotty, uh, are you challenged in, in the things that uh, you very nicely ticked off for us in all the work there? Uh, do you feel some challenges with respect to time, uh, time amongst providers? Uh, have you been needing to get additional staff, uh, kind of ch- change some things around in that respect? Yes, uh, time is always uh, an issue and in when you have so many hurdles to uh, try different modalities of care, uh, you have to have extra staff to do the pre-certs. You have to have extra staff to uh, get permissions. You have extra time that takes to wait on the phone uh, to get these permissions. Uh, it does take extra staff. It takes extra providers to create the team uh, that helps the patients uh, between the therapist, the uh, behavioral therapist, the uh, primary care, the nurse practitioner, uh, and the other care team members. Uh, it takes more staff uh, to work on these particular issues. Uh, but one of the barriers is the uh, what I call mother may I uh, from all the managed care companies because even all of our Medicaid in West Virginia uh, is uh, under managed care. And the other thing that has made some difficulty uh, has been the new rules that were put in place uh, to uh, to prescribe Sebutex. Um, so there, they added additional 15 to 20 rules uh, and uh, policies that had to be uh, accomplished before a person could prescribe Sebutex. So uh, everybody is is trying to do the right thing, but uh, every time that new rules and 
new procedures that come about, it takes more time, it takes more effort to comply, and it takes extra expense, and you wonder where the money's gone. Mm -hmm. Appreciate that. Uh, thank you, Glenn. Mara, here's an interesting question. A uh, person says, here in the UK, treatment is free at the point of delivery. How do you envision we could adopt this type of model into our system? And I was thinking that others might want to ask the UK, how could we adopt your model into our system? Uh, thinking about uh, 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 Dr. Crotty's comment here, but I think people are wondering uh, how we begin to build these kind of more integrative uh, models. Uh, this is kind of the area you're in the midst of. Uh, where are these things kind of coming into play uh, in, in primary care, in health systems? Uh, who tends to take the lead on any of these things? Yeah, I, I think, you know, we're talking about payment as one barrier, but it's certainly not the only barrier. Um, and I think, you know, we... I don't want to say it's easy to blame things on payment, but there, this is really difficult work. So as I was saying earlier, there's a lot of provider education and training about how to engage in some of these different modalities. You know, the evidence on opioids has changed and training and education for providers around pain has to change and also be be augmented, I think, with more information than was currently provided. So there's the provider education piece and then the patient education piece around pain. So how do patients expect um, their pain to be managed? What do they um, have an expectation to feel after, say, a surgical procedure? So I think a lot of what needs to be adopted, regardless of your payment system, is really about education and training of both providers and patients, and then making sure that there is a system in place to support that. Thanks. Go ahead, Rob. Uh, the Academic Consortium for Integrated Medicine and Health has over 70 academic health systems and health centers around North America. And uh, many of them are involved in this space. And I'm sure if uh, any of the listeners uh, live, uh, you know, proximal to some of those members, reaching out to them for resources or help or input, um, I'm sure that that would be very welcomed. Mm -hmm. Thank you very much. And I guess uh, folks know how to get in touch there. What's the best way to do that? Uh, the website is uh, imconsortium.org, okay. and you can see the list of the uh, members there, as well as just emailing the staff, which is info at imconsortium.org. Okay. okay. I may be the naive one here, but I wanted to ask uh, somebody, um, uh, Rob, maybe I'll start with you, and then we could ask Shane or Glenn as well. Are we concerned, so Mar gave the example of uh, providers at the uh, at HCA, the health, big health system, sort of saying to their patients, listen, after surgery, you know, we may be dealing with things a bit differently and you may need to tolerate a little pain. So that's one kind of pain. And then we're talking about chronic pain. And I'm wondering, in terms of the modalities that we're putting forward here right now, are we thinking about both uh, acute and chronic, or are we thinking a little bit more around chronic pain? No, they can be helpful for acute and chronic pain. But I think the key point is that um, there has been a backlash since the CDC opioid guidelines. And as a practicing family physician, I want to go on record that many patients have been helped with opioids at safe and effective dosing, with appropriate monitoring, et cetera, et cetera. And many of those patients have felt uh, very betrayed because 
some of their physicians have felt, well, I can't prescribe those anymore. And so we can't just leave and abandon those patients. And so an appropriate integration or combination of appropriate pharmacologic and uh, complementary integrative therapies uh, is definitely the way to go. Okay, thanks. Shane, your thoughts at all? I mean, do you are you equally involved? Is this around chronic pain, acute pain? What did how did you feel when you read about uh, HCA uh, and uh, sort of attempts to say they're going to commit themselves to communicating with patients, maybe some slightly different expectations about pain? Yeah, we so the the first thing is that we definitely addressed both acute and chronic pain. Some of the coordination around our campus from our ED to hospital to primary care was that, you know, in, in the acute pain setting, um other surgery ED would do about seven days worth of pain medication, and then our understanding across the campus is that primary care would handle the rest so that everyone understood how it worked. We could really bring people back to that primary relationship and manage things over time. So that's an example of, you know, one thing that we thought about with regard to acute. And then with the chronic, we definitely got into the alternative modalities and really thinking about non-opioid options, et cetera. But um, I'll be honest. I mean, my reaction to the expectation of having pain, I mean, I don't think it's, um, I don't think it's bad, but at the same time, I, you know, there's definitely some discomfort um, maybe coming from the angle that Robert just mentioned, which is that, you know, I, I think that um, I've been worried from the very beginning of this that we, you know, that one might go too far and really under-treat pain to a significant degree. So so I think it's a really complex issue. I think it's really difficult. Um, I'm a little hesitant to, um, to really change expectations around pain, uh, although I could see, you know, I could see over time certainly things migrating uh, to a place that's different than we started, which is, you know, people might might have that expectation more, more frequently that there will be some pain, but, but I'm a little bit uh, hesitant to jump on board just yet with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Rob, a question from Chris here. Uh, are there concerns that in some circumstances, if pain is under-treated, people may seek uh, drugs in other ways if they feel that that's really what they should have gotten um, if, or, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah, no, that's a very common scenario. Yeah. The challenge for a primary, well, for any physician when they're evaluating a patient with pain who is requesting opioids is, is the patient having pain and does not have a substance use disorder and therefore may genuinely need the medication and perhaps opioids. There's often situations where you have an individual with substance use disorder and coexisting uh, uh, pain. These are very challenging patients. Uh, uh, to manage. Um, and then there are patients who have substance use disorder, really don't have significant pain and are seeking medicines. So being able to distinguish between those is key. Um, consulting with addiction specialists, behavioral health specialists can be very helpful in that realm. Okay, very good. All right, uh, John, you want to uh, mention uh, where we can uh, <laughs> hear from Mara and Rob again. <laughs> Um, and uh, then we'll just take a, a – we'll, we'll start to wrap up. Go ahead. Yeah, of course. Really quick. Uh, thanks, Madja. We, we hope you learn more about confronting the opioid crisis this afternoon, and, and we wanted to invite you and your team to engage a little more deeply with us uh, by letting you know about our upcoming virtual expedition, Taking on the Opioid Crisis. IHI virtual expeditions are action-focused online training programs for teams, and they last about two to four months and focus on some of the most challenging areas facing healthcare professionals today. For our opioid crisis expedition, uh, participants will learn how to improve opioid prescribing practices by educating prescribers and care team members about the risks of the drugs, uh, as well as teaching care teams and their patients safer ways to manage chronic pain, like we discussed today on WHI. 
Taking on the Opioid Crisis begins on February 28th. Uh, we hope you and your team will consider joining us and our great faculty in confronting the challenge of the opioid crisis. For right. more information, visit IHI.org slash expeditions. Thank you, John. All right, let's go around the horn, and uh, maybe what I'm going to do is ask everybody a common question. Uh, thank you all uh, who've chatted in, all who are listening. Uh, we hope you'll also share this program with others uh, once you get the link, and that'll be on our website uh, tomorrow. What's your advice to anyone who's tuned to this WIHI about, uh, we'll kind of stick a little bit with, certainly we could all be patients at any one moment, as Steve has reminded us, uh, but let's think about people who are in healthcare and uh, what might folks, maybe, I don't know, Marv, it's by next Tuesday, but what might you do uh, with sort of what you're hearing about uh, today, assuming that people are in some position uh, to start either conversations within their organization or to kind of raise things uh, about pain, integrative, whatever we've talked about. Mara, I'll start with you. Sure. And so I don't know if this is uh, by next Tuesday, but I just think it's really important that in all of the conversations about opioid prescribing, it's really critical that the issue of pain and pain management not get lost. People are taking opioids to manage pain, and if their pain is still there, we need to not, as as Rob was saying, kind of jettison them without um, anything that might help. And I think, you know, prescribing practices are improving. There is still a lot of work to do. So I'd really encourage providers and organizations to really start thinking about this re-education and retraining of providers and patients with some of these non-opioid pain management options that we've been hearing about today, and also how they're going to start talking with patients about, you know, a different approach to pain management, whether that is, um, you know, occupational therapy, physical therapy, massage, and not just perhaps opioids that they might be used to getting, you know, you go for a prescription. So I think that, as I said, we are making some good progress, but some of these difficult conversations with providers, with patients, and with payers about how to actually operationalize this or, or what's next. Okay. Thank you very much. Glenn, what would you say? People have kind of heard some of what you're dealing with there uh, in a very challenging circumstance where uh, there's a, you've got to deal with a lot of addiction uh, in your area and then hoping to prevent people from uh, getting uh, addicted. Any kind of advice for those uh, listening who may have kind of some similar challenges? Well, I, I think that the some of the keys is to ensure that there is adequate education of all the caregivers, doctors, nurse practitioners, behavioral therapists, nurses, LPNs, whole care team. And we ought to take a systematic approach to that education and think of ways that every conference, every meeting has some part of their meeting that provides continuing education on prescribing medications and how to deal with the tough cases. We have an obligation as care providers to treat pain, and we can't walk away from it, but we need to do it in a more systematic ma manner like South Central does and bring in lots of modalities into it. But it, it, the key is a systematic approach, a systematic policy regarding that's what HCA is trying to do is to say we 
we will treat your pain, but you're going to have some pain. We aren't going to treat you to the point of no pain. Uh, so there's a balance. And doctors and nurses all provide that continuum of risk assessment of do I have this patient treated adequately for the pain or do I have to back off of it because the pain medicine is causing more problems than the pain. So that's the that's a conundrum that everyone faces, but I encourage us to really think of opportunities in all meetings that we could get education out uh, quicker, faster than we're doing. Okay. Thank you so much, uh, Glenn, for being part of the program today, Glenn Crotty. Shane, uh, on uh, a model you've got going there, you know, many would love to, uh, you know, try and get a little closer to, uh, but uh, what might be some of your uh, advice for folks who are trying to open up more space here? Sure. Uh, I'll try to make it brief, um, but given everyone else's comments, which I think were great and I agree with, I, I would say try to add something different, which is also ma make sure you engage leadership. You know, that's a really, without leadership support, these kind of efforts don't go very far. Um, and so that's a good place to start is really onboard them, make sure that they fit somehow with your core values in the organization and flow with other things. And then and then reach out to other branches of your organization or healthcare. For a long time, healthcare has been, behavioral health, for instance, has been separate from kind of primary primary care or primary medical care, alternative medicine might be different. So so start to, to reach out to um, other avenues and try to bring bring folks together under that supportive leadership. Okay. All right. Thank you so much, Shane Coleman from South Central. All right, Rob, you'll get the last word. Uh, words, <laughs> words to the wise. <laughs> wise to the words. <laughs> I think when we see our patients tomorrow with pain, focus on how the pain is impacting the patient. Not the zero to 10 scale, which is really relatively um, uh, unhelpful, but how does it impact them, particularly on their function? And then develop a plan that supports them to improve their function and try to look, although medications are extraordinarily helpful, move beyond medications and think about other options. And particularly low-hanging fruit would be options that involve gentle physical activity Physical activity and movement is critical to the treatment of pain. Uh, gentle yoga and Tai Chi classes, even self-help type videos that are available for this uh, would be low-hanging fruit. Thank you. All right. Well, thank you very much, uh, Rob Saper. Well, a great group uh, gathered together, and that includes you, our audience. So I want to thank everybody so much uh, for your contribution. And do remember that you can download this chat when you get off the show today, and you can also find it on our website tomorrow. Next up on WIHI on January 25th, uh, the Chief Quality Officer. So when you think about leadership, as uh, Shane was talking about, what's your Chief Quality Officer also have to say uh, about pain management and uh, keeping an eye on this as well as all the other things he or she has to focus on. So that's January 25th, 2 p.m. Eastern Time. We have a great panel for that as well. Uh, thank you for when you also get off the show today, in addition to downloading whatever you want, there's a brief survey that really helps us. Uh, if you fill it out, then we have an idea what worked for you and what we can always do to improve. And don't forget, you can find this program as a podcast on iTunes. 
uh, distributed by your favorite podcast provider. Any questions whatsoever, you can email info at IHI.org, and uh, anyone there will be happy to help you out. There's a great group who help make WIHI possible. They include John Gothier, Matt Morris, Vicki Minden, Haley Ladd, Joanna Carmona, Jameson Case, Val, and Val Weber. And it's my privilege to host this program that continues to be about very spirited learning and improving health and patient care most of all. So for the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, I'm Madge Kaplan. Have a good day.